Heavenly Father, I thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And so, Lord, on this uh, Trinity Sunday morning, we come to you uh, glorying in your mercies. Chief among them that you have given us uh, yourself and your Son and by your Holy Spirit. And that you have revealed yourself to us in the Word. The Word of God, the Word made flesh. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would dwell among us and lead us and guide us into all truth as you have promised. That we may see both your glory and our lives for what they really are. And that according to your Spirit, that we may live lives that honor you, rooted in the gospel. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our only mediator and advocate. Amen. All right. Well, we are in our second week of a four-week series on John's first letter. And uh, this week is entitled, uh, Sweet Child of Mine. Uh, one of my favorite songs uh, growing up, but um, but that's a whole other story. Um, the, uh, the reason I chose that title is because this really does take a look, this passage, this second section of, First John does take a look at uh, what a disciple of Christ looks like, what a sweet child of his uh, really looks like. Just to recap a little bit, the Apostle John uh, is the author, and he is writing late uh, in the first century. Uh, almost certainly he is writing from Ephesus, where he had uh, fled to, or to where he, to whence he had fled, is that the right way to say it? Uh, after uh, 70 A.D. when Jerusalem was uh, destroyed by um, the future emperor Titus, and he is uh, the apostle John is writing to these local churches that were familiar with his ministry. He's writing uh, to encourage them uh, in the truth, in the truth that has been revealed uh, through Christ, and he is uh, principally authorized to do so because he was an eyewitness. He was uh, really in the inner circle, uh, Peter, James, and John. He was he was. An eyewitness, and he makes that very clear in the in the sort of preamble, the first four uh, verses uh, of the letter. Uh, but he's he's writing to them because there is a group that has seceded uh, from these local churches, these these sort of house church groups, uh, and they uh, they've left the fellowship, but they are still in the community, and they're in some sense you can imagine you you've had friends leave the Advent, but you're still in supper club with them and things like that, and so they're. Um, you still see them around, and they are espoused, the ones that have seceded, uh, hopefully not necessarily the ones that have left the Advent, but the ones that have left uh, these little churches are uh, espousing this sort of Gnostic heresy. And we, if you remember just last week, just real quickly, two, the two major ideas of Gnosticism, which we really, it, is not, um, it, there's nothing hard and fast about Gnosticism, and that was sort of one of the the beauties of it and, and one of the allure of it uh, in, in the day. And it was still sort of in its, sort of in its buds uh, at the, in the end of the first century and really came into full flower second and third century. Uh, but the two major ideas were certainly getting started. And that, uh, was, that was the superiority of speculative knowledge. That is, uh, you, you did not um, need to have a faith that was based on something other than what you believed uh, you, that you could cr- sort of create in yourself. And that uh, it was... Uh, you can see how that could get loosey-goosey really quick. 
but it was not based on, on faith or behavior or uh, the revealed uh, word of God through the prophets and, and, or anything like that. It was really, maybe take strands of that, but it was sort of this spiritual elitism, almost like New Age uh, back then. That, uh, so the superiority of speculative knowledge. The second idea is that uh, the material world is evil and the spiritual world is good and that the two can't intersect. And you can see how the first can come out of that as well because you can say that, um, that anything that has been revealed and set, set down and over time can't be good. Uh, it, it, we, we need a, a current sort of... Um, the spiritual experience right now. That's the speculative knowledge because the Spirit is working in us and what has been laid down over the centuries must be evil because that the, the material world is evil. And so uh, those are the two major ideas of Gnosticism. They, they are still very much, in, in, uh, in my opinion, and I think many people's opinion, very much alive today. In fact, I was just as I was going back through this uh, material this week, I remembered that uh, my church history professor in seminary uh, took up two full weeks. He, he'd been teaching for years and years, and he just, um, that was when uh, the Da Vinci Code was, was, uh, was in print, and, and uh, he took up two full weeks that uh, he inserted into his, and rearranged his whole schedule uh, in this class that I was taking because of Gnosticism, and just really taking, I mean, the Da Vinci Code is, is a great example of it, and just, um, and just taking contemporary sort of uh, mainline liberal Protestantism, but not just in the church, it's sort of this sort of uh, outlines overall arching contemporary spirituality and showing that it really is Gnosticism. Um, the word Gnosticism based on the Greek word gnosis um, for knowledge. But it really, as John shows us, no knowledge at all. It's just, uh, it's just a myth. But anyway, these spiritual elite, they're claiming superiority in Christ. They're using some Christian language, but they are espousing a completely different and heretical uh, version. And, and so John is writing specifically to equip the faithful uh, who have remained in how to distinguish between the truth and heresy and how to bear witness uh, to the truth. And so John, as we've seen, he works in dualisms a lot of times. It's A or it's B, it's black or it's white, it's light or it's dark. And, uh, and we see a number of these dualisms in the, the passage that we're working with today. We have three, uh, begin, beginning with three very structured uh, statements, ifs, ands, and buts, lots of those in, in what we have. Uh, and I will say that this second section, uh, probably, uh, John, is, John is difficult to, to pin down. And so people go back and forth about how to uh, organize and outline the letter. But I would say that the, um, the second section probably stops at verse... Um, 17 in the second chapter, we're not going to get there. Uh, we're, we're just not going to get all the way there. But I've, I've, uh, we're just going to get as far, far through it uh, as we can. I've, I've outlined, if you have this uh, sheet, you should, uh, there should be plenty um, available. And I've sort of, out, sort of broken it up into three statements. Uh, the first one is, if we say, in fact, all you can see, all, uh, all three of the statements, uh, what John is doing is he is addressing the statements of the secessionists, the, the uh, Gnostics that, have, that are still in, in the community and talking to the Christians there. And so he's, say, he's basically taking their statements and re- responding to them. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, 
We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So, as sort of artsy as John is, it's very structured. It's if we say, and then we have this statement that, that, they, that the secessioners say, and we have fellowship with them, and yet there's no fruit of that uh, in their lives. Then he gives two things. We lie and we do not practice the truth. But, then he gives another descriptive statement. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, then he gives two things. Uh, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. And that's the pattern that we'll see over the next, uh, through ver- I guess through verse, um, the, really the second verse of the second chapter. Um, just a very little break in, in that pattern. Now remember, all of this is an exposition of the fifth verse. We talked about that a good bit last week if you were here. Uh, if you have your, it's not printed, but if you have your Bibles, uh, John, uh, John says, This is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Remember that uh, from last week. God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That is fundamentally a statement about the holiness of God. And the whole, um, the whole letter is an exposition of that statement. How that state, what is our relationship to that statement? What is true about that statement? What is not true about that statement? And how does that play out uh, in our lives as Christians? Uh, I was looking up um, uh, the word darkness in, in the Greek, and one of the, um, and one of the, because that's John's favorite in his letters and in Revelation and in, in uh, the Gospel. That's one of his favorite dualisms, uh, light and dark. So I looked up darkness in the Greek. And the, um, well, this is the definition that one of the, one of the commentaries gave. It said, metaphorically speaking, I mean, it's darkness is the absence of, of light, uh, literally, physically. But metaphorically, of ignorance respecting the divine things and human duties and the accompanying, accompanying ungodliness and immorality together with their consequent misery. I'll say that again. It's just such a rich uh, definition of this metaphor. Metaphorically, what darkness means is uh, of ignorance respecting divine things and human duties and the accompanying ungodliness and immorality together with their consequent misery. See, John, John's not just extolling uh, the, the holiness of God as a proclamation, but also as a polemic against the, the heresies of the, cessation, the secessionists. Uh, and, and, it, uh, and yet this, this, um, this statement that, in, that God is light and in Him there is no darkness, it provides the basis for these ethical statements uh, like we just read that first statement. If you think about light and, and dark, you think about what the corollary definition then for light would be, not just awareness of de- divine things in, in opposition to ignorance of divine things, but actually the divine things. God is light. It, he's the, those are the divine things. Um, and, and for all those who walk in the light, it comes with these, the light is the accompanying goodness and morality and consequent uh, satisfaction uh, in Him. The peace and the joy and all those things that we are satisfied, uh, comes with being satisfied uh, in the light, in, in God, and in the way He's revealed Himself to us in the truth. So this first statement. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Now, fellowship 
there. We, we heard, you probably have heard the, the word koinonia. That's the Greek word fellowship. And it's not just t- togetherness. It's not just like a, being a party, um, chit-chatting on the surface. There, there is a, there's an implication in this word for fellowship of intimacy, of uh, participation in one another, of, of sharing, even of, of blessing. It's a, it's a very much a two-way street, a connectedness. So if, we have, if we're saying we have that type of relationship with the Father, this connected, intimate, sharing, even blessing uh, relationship, and yet we're walking in darkness. To walk, is obviously, is, is an ongoing movement in a particular direction. Uh, you're, you're headed uh, somewhere. It doesn't say if we stumble into the darkness, if we find ourselves once in a while in the darkness, or, or even if we recognize that in us uh, th- there is darkness. But it says um, if, if we walk in the darkness, that is, if, if the continuing and ongoing direction of our lives is, uh, is this sort of consequent uh, misery that comes with um, uh, res- ignorance of respecting divine things. And not only uh, the divine things themselves, but also our duties. Misery comes with it being ignorant of our divine duty, uh, our, our human duties in response to the divine things. Now, I recognize that this, it, this is a little squirrely and it, um, in terms of as we articulate grace and, and we want to put all the pressure on God in terms of uh, His saving grace and all the glory given to God. And we don't want to talk about um, our... Um, we don't want to talk about how we are to act in order to curry the favor of God. Because all the favor of God that could possibly be given to us is ours by faith in Christ. And John is very, very clear about that. And so if we take a statement like this out of its context, then we get in trouble really quickly. Really quickly. And in fact, what we do when we hear... uh, if we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Well, what we, our immediate, immediately what our mind does is that we need to do everything we can to walk in the light. And we immediately put all the pressure uh, on ourselves. Um, it's challenging. This verse is challenging. It should be. It's a polemic. You know, it's, it's against uh, heresies that have deep roots in our society today. And we shouldn't think that we are... Um, that we are set apart from those things or, or un, that we are untouched by those things uh, by the overarching spirituality of our day. Uh, but it pierced the heart of the cessation, secessionists' uh, heresies and it pierces the heart of way, the way we live our lives as we as Christians look at our lives. If we, have, we say we have fellowship with Him, but it are, if we walk in the darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. And, and that, that should cause us pause. As actually, as we go down um, through each of these things, uh, we will find it very uncomfortable. And that's okay. But we can't take, it, take this statement apart from verse 7. Um, now, it's not a one-time claim. It doesn't say, uh, if you have made this statement once, that, that's not the way the language is set up. You've made the statement once that we have fellowship with God. Um, but that you, that you're, the ongoing direction of your life is that you're saying that you have a fellowship with God. 
and yet you're con- there's no fruit of it in your life. Um, it's an ongoing. It's the direction of your life. And if the in the ongoing walk of your life you claim to have this intimate, sharing, uh, sort of blessing relationship with God, and yet the ongoing movement of your life does not also reflect in some way the character of God, then the Holy Spirit. Uh, I want again. I want to be very careful how I say this, but John says the Holy Spirit uh, is is dormant at best, such that you are lying, first of all, probably to yourself, um, and you're not a person of integrity. Because it, in the sense that uh, your life and your stated beliefs are not integrated, there's an ethical implication to the gospel, not of your our salvation. And John is not talking about that, but he is teaching his people in these churches how to recognize, both in their lives and in what they hear from um, the heresies around, how to recognize truth. How to recognize truth. So if we say we have fellowship with Him, but there's no perceivable change in our lives, then we lie and we're not practicing the truth. And that, if um, if that was the end of the class, we would be in trouble. But it's not. Whenever you see the word but in the New Testament, it is, it's a big deal. I don't want to say that that's without exception, but so many times in the letters of Paul and the letters of the apostles, um, he'll make a statement, but. Um, and and it's, it's glorious. And, and this is the way it is here. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Now, what we do with that is we say, therefore, we need to do everything we can to walk in the light. That's just the way, that's, that's, that's our heart, that's our condition, where we immediately think of ourselves. But John's not thinking of ourselves. Remember, the light exposes the darkness. And so one who's, the ongoing direction of our lives is to be submitted to the exposing quality of God's holiness. As a Christian, you want the light to expose the darkness in your heart. There's no, there's no expectation that as a Christian there is no darkness. The expectation is that as a Christian we want the darkness gone. We, we glory in Christ working in us and making us like Himself. We glory in the process of sanctification. And so, we have, uh, interestingly, uh, you, you think about Psalm 139. Remember, uh, David's right, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The, the last part of that, uh, that Psalm 139 ends this way. It says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me into the way everlasting. And I used to really not like that verse. Because I, I thought, well, I mean, David's just saying, see God, see how awesome I am? See how, how blameless I am? And I, gosh, you, you look at his life and you just know that he's, he's not. And I don't know when I realized that's not what he means. He's saying he wants to walk in the light, which is not to say that he's never going to fall into darkness, he's never going to make mistakes, he's never going to sin, or, or that his heart isn't still steeps in sin. But the difference, what happens to a Christian is, 
is that you want the light to expose your darkness. You want for the glory of God in your life, for Him to work in your life and to chase away the darkness in your life. Which is not to say that it's going to happen completely here. It's not to say that the pressure is on us in that transaction. But it is to say uh, that there is an ethical implication. Um, Why would you want this? Why would you want the darkness in your heart to be exposed? It's because of what... Because of the gospel. Because we understand the gospel. Because we understand what he has done... Uh, for us, that He's died to save us, and He's risen again to offer us eternal life. Please, Lord, thank You. Make me like Yourself. Um, it's interesting, isn't it? That he, it's, it's not a direct refute. You would think, based on verse 6, He would say, if you walk in the light, then you're finally telling the truth, and you're practicing the truth. But He doesn't say that. Rather, what He says is that, um, that two things happen. When you're living your life such that it is, we, are, we desire being exposed uh, to God. That we, you know that, what's the, uh, the opening prayer uh, of our, I'm going to get it wrong because I'm not looking at it, even though I've said it a million times in our service. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secret is. Is that good news, really? When we say that like that's a great comfort. Oh, no. And yet, as Christians, we want uh, the light. And two things happen. Two things happen, uh, John says. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. We have fel- we have, remember, if we have fellowship, if we say we have fellowship with God, there's that intimate sharing, and yet we walk in darkness. But here he says... If we're walking in the light, if we're submitted to God's exposing glory, then that actually gives us fellowship with one another. We belong to the body of believers. We stay together. He's talking to to a group that has been left by people who don't have the light. But if we are exposed to the light, then we actually stay together. There's no such thing. We hear it all the time. You know, I, I believe in Jesus. I just don't, I don't, I'm not a big fan of the church. Frank wrote about it in the adventure not long ago. Um, you know, my, I talked to a guy uh, when I was living on uh, John's Island. He said, it was so bizarre. He said, Man, I don't need a church. Uh, I've got, he worked outside. He worked, and it's just, it was a glorious farm that he worked on. He, and uh, he said, Man, this is my church right here. And I, as I read the Bible, I've, I've practically got the whole book of Acts memorized. How can you read the book of Acts and think that there's a Christian in, in the New Testament that doesn't have something to do with the church? It was, uh, the New Testament doesn't know anything about a Christian who isn't connected to the church. Being exposed to the light um, connects us. It gives us fellowship with one another. Have you, have you ever noticed in your life, like, Christian friends are the best friends? And, and I, which is not to say that we can't have really good friendships with, with non-Christians. I don't want to say that at all. But there's just something better about knowing that the person, this person that you love, think of it as your, even your spouse. You can make a marriage work, absolutely, when if you're a Christian and your spouse isn't a Christian. But if they are Christians and the person you love shares the thing that you love the most, there's just a, there's an intimacy there. There's a fellowship. And my Christian friends from college, we can see, go 
five or ten years without seeing each other, and we pick it right up where we have left off. And you've, you've, you've had that kind of relationship before. So this exposing light actually bonds us together in the church, fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. So it's the, it's, remember, it's the, we go right to, therefore we've got to walk in the light. But what John does is he goes right, it's the blood of Jesus that's doing the cleansing. See, our sanctification never departs from our justification. It's always a return to the cross of Christ. It's always a return to the blood of Christ. Uh, it's Him that's doing the cleansing. It's not our efforts to live righteously. Uh, cleansing. The word for cleansing is catharsis. It's, a, it's uh, the blood of Jesus. It, we, when we think of, um, of catharsis, we think of that like an emotional release, right? A, like a lifting, like crying is, is cathartic. It's, there's this release. And Jesus is saying, there's, there's, uh, uh, John saying that the blood of Jesus gives, gives us this cleansing release from all sin. It's oxyclean. It's a stain lift. It just comes up. It, it's, a, it's a buoying. And, and it's, again, it's, it's, not that, it's not that His blood just saves us once and then we have our, to live our lives. But it's a return to the blood of Christ. The return to the blood of Christ uh, cleanses us from sin along the road in the ongoing uh, direction of our lives. Uh, it's uh, the cathartic cleansing. It's an ongoing process uh, in the life of a Christian. So that is that's the first statement. And I told you we're not going to get all the way through. Um, that's okay. So the second statement, uh, verse 8. If we say, there's another statement by the uh, secessionists. If we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We say we have no sin. We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now we see the statement from the session today. We see this, um, even that God just accepts you as you are. There's, uh, there's only, uh, we, we, Frank talked about it in the sermon this morning. You know, we're all children of God. It cuts out um, that, it cuts out the atoning work of Christ. God uh, does accept you as you are as long as there's a bloody cross between you and Him. We leave out, if we leave out atonement, uh, then we leave out uh, the thing that separates us. Um, we, and, and if we do so, we're just deceiving ourselves. We're, you see, the first one, there, we're, we're lying. Here, another one, there's, we're deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. It's self Deception is just simply not true. It's not what's true about our lives to say we have no sin. To, to, um, to not think that we have just little quirks and peccadilloes and that really we can just get on with our lives. But, here's this glorious transaction, but if we confess our sins, in order to confess our sins, we have it, that requires an honest assessment of, our, of the sin in our lives and therefore we're not deceiving ourselves uh, therefore, the truth is in us. It has to be in us. Otherwise, we'd say we don't have any sin. And so, again, it's not a direct corollary because the, if we confess our sins, that assumes that we've already corrected the two things that happen if we say we have no sin. But if we do confess our sins, two things do happen. Number one, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And number two, He will cleanse us uh, from all unrighteousness. First, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He's faithful. That is, 
Um, that's a covenant word. He, he will forgive us from our sins. And here's another thing that I've always stumbled on. He's just to forgive us our sins. And I kind of work, I always say it's really unjust. It's really unjust. Uh, if, if He forgives our sins, um, then, uh, then you know, where does the sin go? Well, it went on the blameless one. How is it just? I mean, it's gracious. It's incredible. But how is it just that a, a loving God uh, took our uh, sin upon, I mean, the, the Christ, blameless, took our sin uh, upon himself. How is that uh, just? Well, it's actually, he's just to forgive our sins because the sin, the penalty has already been paid. I, he, he's not addressing that he's just in the grace of God, just in the uh, atonement uh, of the sacrifice of Christ, but he's just in the fact that he's not going to make us pay twice. The sin has already been paid for. The penalty has already been uh, been met in Christ. Um, the sentence has already been carried out on the cross. And so uh, he is not going to make that penalty be paid again. He's, he is just. It's been paid. And think about when somebody wrongs you, you want them to pay. Especially if it's emotional. Financial, that helps too. Uh, but, if, but you want them to pay. What Christ has done is He said, or God has done, because of Christ, I'm not going to make you pay. Because the penalty's already been paid. What if we did that in our lives? What if our spouse didn't have to pay for their sins because we put their, let their sin go to the cross? We could just say, okay, you, I'm not going to make you pay for that because Christ has already forgiven. We want forgiveness. Offering it because of Christ is a different thing. What we have, and I'm not a lawyer, so you can correct me, uh, later, uh, but um, it's like a class action lawsuit in reverse. And, and the, the way I understand, you can tell me, I'm sure I'm going to mess this up at some point, but the way I understand a class action lawsuit is that the offended parties align themselves against a single uh, defendant. Is that, is that right? Is that how that works? Is that there's a single defendant. And, they're, uh, they're, um, and they're, they're all together accusing this one defendant. But now, in the gospel, all uh, uh, let's see. If, uh, all, let's see. The defendants align. Okay, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, so the offended parties, uh, the pl- plaintiffs, right? Now we what we have is we have we have all of the defendants uh, aligned under one uh, plaintiff. Is that right? And this plaintiff actually happens also to be the judge. And the class action, there's class action forgiveness. And so the, the judge actually takes upon him, the judge who is the plaintiff takes upon himself the penalty for the class of, de, of defendants. Is that, is that, am I making this? It was much clearer when I was thinking this through in my mind. <laughs> there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus both for unclear teachers and for all of us, class of uh, would-be defendants. Uh, he put himself in our place. It's the, the blood of Jesus. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So is he being def- uh, redundant? Forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that the same thing? Is forgiveness of sins the same as cleansing from unrighteousness? 
And the answer to that question is uh, cleansing from unrighteousness involves the forgiveness of sins, but it's so much more. So much more. What is righteousness? What is righteousness? It's, it's our uh, resume. It's a validating performance record that opens a door for us. When you uh, go to apply uh, for a job, you send in your CV, your resume, and it lists all uh, your activities and all your accomplishments. And it's by that that you say, I am worthy to take, to take this job, accept me, and give me this job. Or if you're applying to a school, you list out all of your academic credentials and you say, look at me, I am worthy based on this, accept me. Or don't accept me, as some of the colleges I applied to uh, say. But, but that's, that's what we present. That's our righteousness. It's a resume. And what we assume, what the human heart always assumes, and what every religion everywhere believes, is that God works the same way. That you... The good people get into heaven, and bad people don't get into heaven. And we are, based on your righteousness, that is how you are accepted. But then Paul comes along. Jesus comes along. Paul comes along. The apostles come along and, and say that actually, you have been made accepted by, as a gift. And that it, it, it is perfectly acceptable. Uh, and that, that is, that is it's not sim- simply cleansing you from immorality, but it's cleansing us from, from everything that has ever made us unacceptable. It's completely paving the road, clearing the road, all the oak trees that have come down over the road from the hurricane and the tornadoes of sin in our lives, that God has come through and He has cleared the road so that we uh, can come to Him. Uh, Tim Keller said, and he was actually quoting, uh, quoting someone else, I think named Sloan, uh, not our bishop, unfortunately, but it was, um, it said that, uh, he said, forgiveness is essentially negative. Forget, you, forgiveness says you may go. But justification says you may come. He, he, is, he, is, he is justified. He's cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He's cleared the road. Come unto me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Forgiveness says you can go, and that's important. But justification says uh, you may come. Okay. Number three. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Okay, the the other next statement, we have not sinned. That's their their statement. You're lying uh, to yourself in uh, in the first one. But now, you're not just lying to yourself. You're not just deceiving yourself. Uh, You're actually calling Him a liar. They're actually saying that God, that Jesus is a liar. I mean, what have the prophets been saying for a thousand years? That you are sinners. I mean, what did Jesus say to the most moral and religiously rigorous people of his day? You're whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're full of dead man's bones on the inside. 
and we hear it today, it's moral relativism. You can set your own standards. And John is saying, is if, if you, Mr. Spiritual Elite, say that you have not sinned, then that is 100% evidence that you are still deeply in your sin. That you are walking in the darkness. You've not let the light expose it yet. The light has not shined on your darkness. The truth is, we don't even live up to our own standards. If you got up to heaven and God says, okay, you never heard about the gospel, you never understood it, I'm not going to hold you to my standards, you never heard of the Ten Commandments, you didn't even agree with it. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play the tape of everything you've ever told anyone else they should do in order to live their lives. And we'll see how you do according to those standards. And you won't live up to it. John doesn't want his people to sin. He called, listen, he's just, just a consummate pastor. My little children. He's like 95 years old. And he's writing to them. He says, my little children. Like a father to his child. Uh, I'm writing these things to remind you. I don't want you to sin. I mean, you know, you're clergy. We don't want you to sin. We, don't, we, we lift up the, the grace of Christ. It's not to say that you, the way you live your lives don't matter. They do. We don't want you to sin. We don't want to sin ourselves, but we do. And John says if anyone does sin, not to say that if that should happen, we probably won't. If anyone does sin, and it will. That's the way it's constructed. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what the word advocate in Greek is? It's paraclete. It's the same word that is used uh, in the Gospel of John to, to, to name the Holy Spirit in our um, Gospel uh, last week, he said, I'm sending you the counselor, the helper, is translated, and sometimes the advocate. Uh, but here, the Holy Spirit, see, there's this, unit, there's this unity in the Trinity. That here, the helper, the same word, the paraclete, is Jesus Christ, the righteous. An advocate is one who argues someone's case um, before an accuser. He argues on, on behalf of someone else. We have an advocate. Uh, who is uh, arguing our case for us before the accuser, which is which is God Himself, and yet it's not uh, the, an angry God. It's it is a, a a holy God who's actually sent us and appointed us the Advocate. In fact, He is Jesus Christ, the righteous, he, the one who is advocating on our behalf, is a hundred percent accepted by the Judge. That's His righteousness. He's totally accepted, which we just talked about. And he is uh, the propitiation. And scholars, you, you can tell you the scholars go back and forth. Does, that, does this word mean that he is the appe- that he appeases the wrath of God in his sacrifice or that he removes our guilt? And they go round and round about this. Uh, the answer is yes. The answer is yes. He is the means of appeasing the wrath of God. And it was the same God uh, who sent him to do so in order to remove our guilt and pave the way that we, we might be accepted. So what you see here, uh, in the midst of these ethical statements, walk in the light, uh, that John never loses sight of the gospel. That everything that we are to do is in a response to what has already been done. It is not an ever to gain the favor of God because all of the favor of God who is given to Jesus Christ the righteousness is bestowed upon those whose faith is in Him. You're, you don't get bestowed by walking in the light. You walk in the light because it has been bestowed upon you. The gospel 
flows out of the holiness of God. Remember, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. The God, that's the statement of the holiness of God. And the gospel of God flows out of the holiness of God. And yet, the holiness of believers' lives flows out of the gospel. We don't, do, we don't walk in the light in order to gain favor, in order uh, to be accepted, but because we've been accepted, we walk in the light. Um, I've said this before, and it's one of the last things I'll have time to say today, but um, when I was uh, taking my ethics class in seminary uh, from Paul Zoll, and I, there are a few things I remember from seminary, but but this is really one of the most poignant. And it was sort of a throwaway line for him, but it just it was a thunderbolt for me. He said, "Grace creates what the Decalogue wants. Grace creates what the Decalogue wants. The Decalogue, the, the Ten Commandments, wants a holy life from your very core motivation." Outwardly, That's why the summary of the law is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And what do we say after we say that in the service every time? Lord, have mercy. The, the summary, if I get up here every week and say just, just love one another, that's, 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 the, that's the summary of the law and that's what condemns us. But grace, the fact that we have been given uh, righteousness, acceptability, based on what, uh, regardless of the fact that we don't deserve it, Grace creates what the Decalogue wants. We walk in the light because of what we received, not in order to receive it. Now, um, I would encourage you to go through the next uh, few statements. And when, you say, when he says things like, whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments is a liar. Whoever, that word, the phrase, whoever says, that's its key. That that's another statement of the uh, secessionists. That's the this statement. You go through, see what they say. See how that. Uh, see how you say that. See how the culture, our culture, says that. Um, I mean, spend some time on verse three. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. That should occupy us until next week. Um, it's 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 tough, and yet we walk in the light, not in order to get the favor, but because of the favor that has been given to us in grace. Let us pray, Heavenly Father. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, for such grace, that you would love us and pave the way uh, for us to come to you. Thank you for the forgiveness that says you may go, but thank you for the justification and the love that says you may come. We pray, Father, that as we live our lives, that we may come daily. We will allow the blood of Jesus to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we would confess our sins, and by your grace, Lord, that we would walk in the light as you are in the light. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.